Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and on Power Twenty. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Hello and welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and Amanda and Travis and Whitney Creasy. Travis and Whitney went through some real difficult uh, struggles with health in the middle of an adoption and they still made it through just fine. And I think that's one of the things that we're all afraid of losing our health in the middle of significant events in our life. At this moment, to be in the middle of an adoption and stare something as big as leukemia in the face would terrify any of us. But Travis and Whitney have done an amazing job, and they're out there doing it still today. So how are you guys doing? Doing well. I'm, I'm so happy to be uh, on with you and uh, brought my fact checker along with me, <laughs> my <laughs> wife, Whitney. Uh, and I uh, just appreciate you letting us come on with you. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Um, when Travis told me the name of your podcast, Foster Care and Unparalleled Journey, I said, well, that's appropriate. <laughs> it, it really is. <laughs> yeah, there, there's not too many journeys that are the same to this world, for sure. No. I mean, we can tell by your accent that obviously you're from New York. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could have tried my uh, accent, New York accent, but it won't sound anything. I'm up close, but... Well, everybody tells we are, me I have a Midwest accent. We're from the accent. South. We're from Tennessee. Well, we live in Tennessee, born and raised in, in Alabama. But it's funny that you say that about the accent because I'm actually trying right now to not <laughs> sound so Southern. So it really gives me away. So, well, let's be honest. And I probably won't listen to this episode when it's over because I have a really hard time hearing myself talk on a recording or a video or anything it's um amanda laughs because she to date has not we're, we're at episode this is probably about 50 between 55 and 60 she still has not heard one of the episodes that she's been involved with yet <laughs> i understand yeah i, really I understand. don't i don't care to listen to my own voice i hear it enough I, as it is i'm told i have a midwest accent which i always i don't understand we don't have accents here right <laughs> but i understand no yeah. yours perfectly because when i was young about uh, the second grade, I spent a couple of years down there in White Bluff, Tennessee, as a young kid, and I, I can pick that accent out of just about anywhere. <laughs> and I speak Southern very fluently when I need to. <laughs> it's a good trait to have when you need it. Exactly. <laughs> so you guys adopted a couple kids. Um, were they were they biological siblings? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so were both adoptions done at the same moment? They were. Mm-hmm. All right. And did, was this through the foster care system or, or through an agency or or how did that happen? It's through the foster care system and Department of Children's Services here in Tennessee. We were um, we became licensed foster parents in early 2017. We started our um, our training classes in late 2016, like December and so we finished our home study and all of that in around March of 2017 and got our first placement in April of 2017. And um, it was a little boy and a little girl. They were 13 months old and two at the time. And they've been with us ever since. And we adopted them last summer. It was in July last of 2019. That's really awesome. When you guys were 
getting your license to be foster parents were you just wanting to be foster parents were you looking to adopt what was what was your journey um we were we were looking to just be foster parents we um you know pretty quickly in the classes you know they kind of tell you hey you know if you're in this to adopt outside of you know kinship this probably might not be the best approach because there's no you know guarantees there there's no you know and and so we were perfectly at home you know we were we were really looking to be foster parents adoption you know we were open to it but it wasn't the reason we got in you know we you know we're surrounded with with people where we work uh you know that they have a relationship with the lord they you know seem to be good families and things of that nature and kind of had things together. And we just kind of started looking around and was like, well, you know, we're surrounded by these folks, but how can we make an impact? You know, how can we really reach out and kind of change the cycle or, or, you know, for someone else. And so, you know, we really felt that pull and she felt it before I did, (laughs) you know, and she (laughs) kind of came to me uh, in October of, what did you say? 2016 yeah. and was like, I, I, I feel like we need to do this. And I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, that would be great. But, you know, you kind of get attached to these kids and, and I certainly get attached. I'm a teacher, I'm a coach, you know, and it's hard enough for me to see them graduate out from school, much less them come and live with us and then have to give them up. So, you know, that, that was kind of a difficult thing for me, but that was kind of what we saw. We were like, you know, all these were surrounded by how can we make an impact? for people and, and help them. And, and we really were open, you know, not only as the DCS said, you know, we're, we're looking to help the parents as well and kind of be an advocate for them. And, and however we could do that, of course, we had never been parents before ourselves. So that might've been a little boastful <laughs> of us to think that we could do that. But uh... yeah, it was, um, it was an interesting journey. He, um, like he said, we are just, um, I turned 30 that year and I kind of had this, I don't know. um, I don't know what, what I would call it. Maybe like this crisis of faith. We're Christians. I I, I don't think that we said that, but we're, we're Christians. And I was like, you know, we just stay busy all the time and everybody that we're around already knows Jesus. And like, we're never in front of people who um, don't know Jesus and who need, who, need some kind of help and so um foster care became a way that I thought that we could do that in our everyday lives and our coming and our going and our in our jobs and um you know in our homes and and it I just kept seeing um I I literally that saw billboards like I don't know if the state of Tennessee was doing a campaign at the time for um recruiting foster parents or what but I all of a sudden started seeing become a foster parent billboards <laughs> and um it was football season we love football and I was listening to um games on the radio a lot and um we're Alabama fans so the Al- <laughs> so um there were these commercials every Saturday on the radio where like Nick Saban is recruiting foster parents and I'm like what in the world is this about? And then one of my best friends is a um, a social worker for an adoption agency. And she said, you just have like the perfect setup for 
being able to help children in foster care. And, and then one of his assistant coaches had um, been a foster parent in Houston for many years, and they had adopted a son um, in the foster system in Houston. And um, he kind of said the same thing to Travis separately, not knowing that any of this was going on. And so we just um, kind of jumped on on that wagon, or I did. I jumped on, <laughs> and it took a little longer to bring him on. Um, but we we didn't really go in thinking we were going to adopt children. Um, in fact, I, I had kind of thought going in that we might have some older children um, because we were just kind of more used to working with older kids in our jobs. He's a coach, coaches football. So he's around teenagers all the time. I teach teenagers. Um, I'm a whole lot, even to this day, I'm a whole lot more comfortable around teenagers than around little kids. And um, so it was, it was um, kind of a shock when we brought a one-year-old and a two-year-old in our house. We were definitely everything turned upside down. They tend to do that. They turn everything upside down. They do it three or four times a day, usually, actually. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, mm-hmm. an hour, three or four times an hour, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I was being kind. One of my kids listens to the podcast, so I didn't want her to think, you know, she was too crazy, but she was. <laughs> Not you, everybody else. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we have a couple of young ones now that, that do it on a regular basis, and she sees that all the time, so I'm certain she understands. Yes. I have to ask, though, because as as a married couple who don't have any children of your own to step into parenting as a foster parent first, that had to have been like one heck of a leap of faith. Um, it was, and we did it in ignorance is yes. what it was. Yes. Lots we just, of ignorance. we, we did it in, in ignorance, you know, like, I, I don't know. I think we had more faith in ourselves than maybe we should have. Um, <laughs> But, you know, I think yes, I, I don't I'm know. going to intervene there and say I absolutely had more faith in myself than I should have. So I don't know <laughs> if she can go that strong, but I will say that. But, I, you know, we we did that in in much ignorance. Um, but the um, you know, I, I think God calls people into things that they can't quite do on their own and they they need his strength for and so i definitely believe that this was one of those um one of those things <laughs> they tend to reveal selfishness like that was the big thing for me like i thought i was this selfless person and sacrificial and i gave of my time and i gave of my money and then all of a sudden these kids showed up and i'm out there youtubing how to put a car seat in and calling my cousin who has five kids and going what do these things eat you know and going to walmart at <laughs> you know, 10 o'clock at night and just grabbing stuff. And, you know, and you get, you know, your selfishness is revealed pretty quickly. You know, it's like, you're not sacrificial at all. Uh, and now you're going to be, so <laughs> it's, it's a very revealing thing for sure. But, you know, it was a lot of ignorance, uh, a lot of boldness and our parents, a lot of credit to them. They did not try to talk us out of it. Um, <laughs> of course and, not. They wanted somebody to laugh at. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, they knew we were stubborn enough not to listen anyway, so they didn't waste their breath. They just prepared in, in earnest to help us. Thank God. Yes, yes. absolutely. We needed the help. 
I know my dad had a few moments before we lost him, but a few years back, but I know he had a few moments where he got to truly enjoy laughing at me because I would call him frustrated and he would just laugh and laugh. And then he would give me some advice and help me out. But yes. first he got to enjoy the moment a little bit, yes. I think. My mom does the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and with any luck, you'll get to do the same thing someday, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to look back because that's, that's a big step, not knowing much about parenting. As it turns out, most of the, the, the real parenting experts that you'll meet in life are usually young people who've never had kids. And oh, yes, definitely. I used to be one of those. I, yeah, I think, I yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like most things in life. The more I learn, the more I realize I have no clue about. Right. Yes, sir. They have taught me, uh, they have taught me so much. And that's one of the things we've, we've had in our journey and I talk about quite a bit is, um, you know, some of the lessons that we have learned throughout this process. You know, I, I tell a lot of the stories that we have learned about um, different kids and, and things that we've been through. And um, and some of the things that they have taught us has really just blown me away that there's lessons that I had no idea were there to be learned. There were things that I didn't know I was missing that they that they taught us. You know, you know, we had a little couple, a couple little siblings staying with us, K and A. Um, that's just what I called them. That has to do. You know, we can't we can't really talk about their names, but mm -hmm. the one little boy, he was he was a victim of some really significant abuse. And I'll never forget the first moment I would see him because, you know, listeners who can't see me, go ahead and find a picture of me online somewhere. And when I stand around and put my hate me face on in public, people tend to keep a distance. I don't have to worry about that. Right. So this little guy who was terrified of the world would climb right up on my shoulders. And as a matter of fact, there's a little statue that I got. I have sitting on my desk here somewhere. I don't see it, um, but it's um, it's it's a dad with a kid on his shoulders that was given to me as a gift just because. I'm seen very often with a kid on my shoulders. And this little guy would sit up there because nobody would come within a couple feet of him there. Otherwise, he was a cute kid. People would get in his face. Oh, he's so cute. Hi, buddy. And want to, you know, want to touch, pat his head or shake his hand or give me, try and get a hug. And he did not like that. And he was terrifying. Yeah, he was terrified of the world. And he'd sit on my shoulders all the time. And one day I was in this little small store here locally, a little steel supplier that I was buying a couple pieces of metal from. And he gets, climbs down on my shoulders, and he starts to play in the floor. And I was, like, blown away. I'm like, whoa, this kid is playing in public. This is big. I've never seen this before. And I'm, I'm like, staring at him in the, in the cashier. And I, I'd done business with these people enough. I kind of knew the cashier. And she says, oh, he's okay, honey. I'm like, no, you don't understand. He doesn't do this. And then she walked out from behind the counter and kind of knelt down. She goes, hey, buddy. And I thought, oh, she just ruined it. He's going to be terrified like a little spider monkey right up on top of my head. Here he goes. And he stopped and he looked at her. And then he smiled and kind of waved a little bit. And it blew me away like this kid terrified of the world suddenly just had a moment where he wasn't terrified. And to have that opportunity to see him go from a terrified child to somebody who has some hope in his eye. It was such a moment for me. You know, and un unless you live that life and you see these kids go through things like this, it's hard to truly understand it. Have you guys had any moments like that where the kids have taught you something, something that you didn't even know was a lesson that, that needed to be learned? Oh, absolutely. I I can't think of um, a specific one off the top of my head. Now, I do have one very similar to what you were just talking about. Our daughter was really... Um, distrusting of the majority of people to start with we would I would literally if someone was coming to our house and and you know in those first 
few days of a new placement, there's a lot of people in and out of your house that being case manager or um, uh, like in Tennessee, we, we, I don't know if this happens in all states, but if you have children under the age of three, they come and assess them for um, an early intervention system where they'll send developmental therapists to come work with them if they're delayed in any way developmentally. And so um, there were several people who would come in and out to assess them for different developmental delays, just be it speech or or just social or emotional delays. And so, you know, in those first several days, we just had so many people in and out. And um, she was just really distrusting of everyone. And she would just be scared and and would end up screaming and crying for like an hour or more at a time. And um, so I would actually tell people, like, before you come, if I didn't already know the person and like be able to find a picture of them on Facebook or whatever, I would say, send me a picture of yourself. And I would show it to, to Haley. And I would say, this is our friend, her name or his name is so-and-so and they're going to come visit us and they're going to do this and they're going to do that. And they're going to bring you a sucker or they're going to, you know, bring you a balloon or a stuffed animal or whatever. And I would tell the person, you know, bring her something. And, um, <laughs> anyway, uh, w- it took months for her to begin to trust people, but I do remember the very first time I saw her just beam and smile and actually, um, trust that a person was good. And that was actually, I took her, I took her to a concert, um, and I was telling y'all about this before we got started with the podcast, but it was a concert that a um, a local country singer was doing to raise money for Child Advocacy Center here locally. And it was at a church here in town and we got out of the car and another lady got out of her car right next to us in the parking spot next to us. And I was getting Haley out of her car seat and the lady was like, oh, your dress is so beautiful. And Haley just lit up and she just smiled and um, the lady was standing behind her car, putting something in her trunk. And she just, when I, when I got her out of the car seat and sat her down in the parking lot, she just walked right over to her and hugged that lady around the leg. And, and I was like, what in the world? Wow. This is never, I was like, that's never happened. And, um, so yeah, it is just amazing to see them kind of blossom. And now the flip side of that is, is that no one is a stranger and no one, you know, and so it's like, (laughs) you know, not everybody wants you to hug them and you don't need to be hugging everybody and you don't need, you know, it's, so it's kind of reeling them back in because for so long it was trying to get them to open up some, but with our son, I I can remember he he was a baby, you know, and I, we never had a baby. And so I was doing all the things that you do with a baby to try to get him to go to sleep. And he just was not having it, just screaming his head off you know, in my face. And, you know, at first he was sleeping in the same room with us in a separate crib. And every time we would move and the bed would move, he'd wake up some sound, you know? And so we finally put him in another room and he slept like a charm. But for so long, I was like, I'm doing something wrong. I, you know, he's not attaching to me. It's something with me. It's something with me. It's something with me. And it really wasn't. It was, Hey, I just want to be left alone let me go to sleep, you know, and I don't know what all had happened to him to that point, whether he'd ever been able to rest very well, but it was just kind of like, 
I don't need any movement. I just need nothingness to go to sleep. And once we figure that out, man, he sleeps better than I do. You know, he just <laughs> not had much problem out of it. But it's just every kid is is different. And, you know, that's the adventure. That's the unparalleledness of it, if I can use that word, that each one has a story. Each one has a journey, no matter how long they've been on the earth. And so it's kind of figuring out that puzzle to give them some level of comfort like you're talking about or, you know, in the least expected place, they're going to make some great move or learn something or open themselves up. And it's really that difficulty of giving them an atmosphere where they feel comfortable in doing that, you know, whether it's being on top of your shoulders or however. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You know, the unparalleled part, I, I mean, it just, it fits so well with foster care and adoption and everything in that world. And, you know, you're absolutely right. Every child that we've had, totally different. Even when we've had sibling groups, yeah. you know, brother and sister, complete night and day of each other. They may have been in the same atmosphere, going through some of the same things, but their perspective is completely different. And so each child gives us a different view, gives us different boundaries, gives us different things to learn you know, and it's just amazing. It's amazing to see other people going through that with us. Um, but some of the questions that I do have for you is, you know, we talked a little bit about, you know, being sick and leukemia. You know, how how did that play into your guys' story? What kind of adjustments did you have to make and how scary must that have been? Well, it's um, the leukemia that I had. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, Chuck Pagano, Indianapolis Colts. A few years ago, he had cancer had to miss portion of the season. I had the same cancer uh, as, as he had. And so it was a 30 plus day stay in the Huntsville, in Huntsville hospital. Um, and so I go from, you know, supposedly going to be coaching a middle school football game that Tuesday to going in to an oncologist and them saying, you know, you've got cancer. I'm pretty sure I know what kind it is and you're going to go home but you're going to come back tomorrow and you're going to stay weeks, not days in the hospital. And we're basically going to blow up your immune system and start over. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a whole backstory to that, but you know, you're got these foster kids where they're in the state of Tennessee. They're, you know, they're wards of the state of Tennessee and we, I'm in the hospital in Alabama. So immediately you've got some issues there. Um, obviously they can't stay in the hospital. All of our families live in Alabama. And so of course I'm, you know, getting admitted to the hospital. I ended up not getting to go home. As you can hear, we are busy chasing kids, which means we're not recording podcasts. We need stories though. If you'd like to share your story, Email us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. We'll get back to you as soon as these kids untie us from the chairs and hopefully be able to bring your story to life. And so, of course, I'm, you know, getting admitted to the hospital. I ended up not getting to go home because I, the, the biopsy that they did, uh, they couldn't get me to stop bleeding. And so I ended up going to the hospital from there, from their uh, place. And I was there for 30 plus days, almost 40 days. And so, you know, you go from 
active lifestyle to being around your kids to well, your kids can't really even come in and touch you or interact with you. And at some points they're not even allowed to come in the room. You know, they can wave through the, through the door window and you can, you know, acknowledge that they're there, but you know, and obviously I'm in the point of survival mode. So it's really comes down to Whitney is balancing all of that and having to deal with that. So I know that she had to have some real tough conversations about where those kids were going to go. So you may can answer that better than I can. Yeah. Like he was saying the day that he was diagnosed, we didn't really know what was coming. We knew he didn't feel well. And we, you know, we were, we knew we were going to see a hematologist, um, didn't realize this hematologist was also an oncologist. Apparently all hematologists are <laughs> oncologists. I didn't know that. Once again, ignorance. We, yeah. we have plenty of um, that. So, so, you know, we go in there and this place literally is, you know, it's this Clearview Cancer Institute on the wall. And I was like, Oh, what is going on? And, um, you know, they start having us fill out all of this paperwork, admitting it like they're admitting a new patient and they've set up a meeting with the financial counselor and all of this. And I'm literally like, we don't, I, I was literally, I, was, I said, we don't have time for this. Like we need to see the doctor and get whatever medicine he needs. Cause he's got to go coach a JV football game. And, <laughs> um, you know, I was like, we, we don't have time to sit here and do all this. And y'all are in the South. So football is important. Yes, it's very important. important. <laughs> very important. And so, you know, we're, they do his blood work and they take him back there and they're like, you know, the, the doctor comes in and, and the first words out of his mouth are, I've looked at your blood work from yesterday and your blood work from today. And, you know, based on that, I know you have leukemia. I just don't know what kind. And, and I'm, I'm about to go look at your blood cells under a microscope and, That'll give me an idea, but we have to do a bone marrow biopsy and figure it out. And um, so they did. Yeah, he comes back and he says, I'm pretty sure it's this particular kind. And he said, and that means you need to plan. He looks straight at me and he said, you need to plan on him being in the hospital for weeks, not days. Wow. And um, he said, we'll admit him tomorrow. And you need to plan on him being there for weeks, not, not days. And, uh, immediately I start going through my head. Like I, what am I going to do with these kids? Cause I, I was like, I can't not be there with him. I've, I've got to be with him. And, um, you know, in foster care, your kids can't just stay with just anybody. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you're, you, People have to be approved through the state to to keep your kids, and there has to be fingerprinting and all kinds of stuff that has to happen. And all of our family lives out of state from us. We live in Tennessee, and all of our family live in Alabama, and that's another thing. It's crossing state lines with foster kids, and so I was immediately just running through my brain trying to figure out how how I was going to do this, how I was going to take care of the kids and how I was going to be there with him at the same time. And um, in the meanwhile, they're getting him set up to do this bone marrow biopsy. And 
which is what I was really upset about because that was going to hurt. <laughs> you yes. know, yes, I was true. okay. He came in and said leukemia. Once again, ignorance. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, there's a plan there. And then he was like, and then we're going to have to go do a bone marrow biopsy. And I said, well, there's only one way to get that. And I'm not really excited <laughs> about that, uh, you know, but that's kind of, it's kind of weird because it really didn't sink in until he said the biopsy. And then I was like, okay, well, that's going to hurt a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I've actually, um, so our, our oldest daughter, she was very sick um, and in the hospital, but I have actually witnessed a bone marrow biopsy. And it's a very violent procedure. Yeah. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's, not- it's not pleasant. And it, it uh, yeah. Well, I could feel he, he, I could feel him putting the, like having to put a little more elbow and I don't want to make anybody queasy. So I don't, you know, but I could feel him having to put a little more elbow grease into it. And I knew it was difficult. It was more difficult than he was used to. And, and, you know, that ended up being because, and that's why I ended up having to go to the hospital immediately because my, you know, coagulant was so low because my white count was so high that they, I mean, they, they literally wrapped me in a quilt and put me in the car with my wife and she drove me to the hospital, you know, which is a whole other story in itself. But, um, you know, you're absolutely right. And I'm, I'm glad I've never witnessed one because I'm always on my side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. hiding my eyes like I don't even want to think about the uh, you know what what's going on right now <laughs> yeah and he was literally lunging and cranking that needle into his uh you know rear end and I was like oh this is really bad and all the while um my sister's in labor and um is texting me she's having her first child texting texting <laughs> me from a different hospital um and asking when I'm going to make it there. I'm like, uh, yeah, probably. And, you know, I couldn't tell her. I, I didn't, I, I didn't, I couldn't tell her what was going on with us because, I mean, she's literally giving birth. And so, you know, I had that going through my head. This doctor's over there literally lunging and, and cranking this um, needle into you're gonna have to put you're gonna have to My put a husband. little e on the description explicit. And, Everybody's gonna be <laughs> uh, and knowing he's gonna be in the hospital starting tomorrow, thinking that it would start tomorrow for several weeks. And um, my sister's having a baby, and I don't know what we're gonna do with our own two kids that are at home. And so, you know, bef- bef- he gets the bone marrow biopsy sample and and. He's like, they couldn't get him to stop bleeding. So they were like, well, scratch that on admitting you to the hospital tomorrow. Y'all are going to go straight there. And so we, you know, like he said, they wrapped him in a sheet because he was just literally bleeding out. And I drove him to the hospital, which was not far away. It was, it's like maybe five miles away. And, um, on the way there, I can just remember saying, I can remember exactly where we were at on the road. And every time I, I drive this road, I think about this conversation. But um, I just remember looking at Travis and saying, I know you don't want to think about this right now, but I think that I have to call Heather. Heather was the name of the kid's case manager. And I was like, I think that I have to call Heather and tell her she's going to have to find another home for the kids. I, I don't know how. I don't know how I can take care of them and be here for you too. And um, 
then he was kind of like, I've already thought the same thing. You know, we just couldn't, we just couldn't figure out how it was going to get done. How long have the kids been with you at that point? Um, a year and a half. They'd been with us 18 months. Exactly. Uh, I mean, like, I think the day, that day they had been with us 18 months. So there was a lot of bonding already occurred there. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, I talked to my mom on the phone. We had to get him admitted and get him in, in his room and everything. And, um, our kids at that time, they were actually with, um, some friends of ours from church. Um, they had picked them up at daycare for us and, um, and took them home with them. And they were, um, very, the kids are very comfortable with this couple. They actually call them Mama and Paul Paul. Um, and so, um, I They're challenge the people listening to spell that out, Mama and Papa. That's cool. Yeah, that's a good Southern <laughs> term for you. There you go. Um, the they were really comfortable with them, and so that that at least gave me some peace for that night that that I knew the kids were comfortable there, and they they were fine and didn't know what was going on. Um, and you know, this couple they were they were already approved through DCS to to keep the kids for us um they'd been background checked and all of that and so um they had them for that night and I talked to my mom later after we got settled in the room and she's like just don't don't make any decisions don't call DCS yet just wait until you know more because we still didn't know what what the plan was, we still didn't know exactly what kind of leukemia he had. We didn't know exactly how long he was going to be there. Nothing. And it was, it was like 36 hours before we had all of that information. It wasn't quite two days, but it was, it was about 36 hours before we had all that information. So when we did figure that out and figure out what type of leukemia was, APL is what it's called, acute promyelitic leukemia. Um, I challenge your listeners to spell that out as well. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and we knew what the plan was and how long he would be in the hospital. I just, I called and, and I told the case manager, you know, what was going on and what the plan was and just said, you know, at this point, all of our family was like, they were in love with the kiddos and they were like, We'll do whatever we have to do to to um, help you guys. You know, they were several family members were like, we'll take turns coming and staying at your house. Um, we'll 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 do whatever we have to do to make it work. And so, you know, at that point, I was able to tell Heather, look, we 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 want to be able to keep them and not upset their their routine. And and um you know, really cause another trauma to them where they, they have to be moved um, to another family that they don't know when that's already happened once in their young lives, you know, moving from their from their birth parents to our home. It was traumatizing. And you know, they say that it sets kids back developmentally like six months whenever they have a trauma like that. And like, so if we can keep them, we want to, but I'm just going to tell you, like I have to, I have to really prioritize Travis right now. So I have these family members, they're willing to come and stay and take turns at the house, but it's going to mean that you guys have to, 
really do background checking quickly and it you know all of these things they had to make a lot of you know exceptions to rules and like normally if somebody's going to keep your kids and they have to be background checked you'd have to let dcs know way further in advance than this but they they did they were amazing and they helped us out and um they just they went above and beyond to really make it work for Haley and Daniel to be able to stay in our home and and um, not be moved. And they ran background checks very quickly and very efficiently. I could call them on one day and say, hey, um, my grandparents are coming to the house tomorrow. They're going to be there for the next four days. This is their names. This is their address. This is their ages. Run their run their background, you know, run their background checks and, and they would be like, okay, they're, you know, you're set. Um, so that was, that was really good, but they, they were very willing to work with us because they, they also didn't want to upset the kids. They knew that they were attached and they were in a place that they were used to and, um, they wanted to make it work for them as well. I mean, it sounds like you guys had an awesome support network. Oh, we did. We we really did. I mean, from our actual biological families, our church family, uh, to our school yeah. and football families. I mean, we were just supported on on all fronts, really, just from helping take care of the kids to, I mean, we had friends come. It was in the fall. It was in October. So, I mean, we had people cleaning leaves out of our yard and our gutters and it was just we we were we were so blessed to live in a community like we live in and and to have um the support of um people like we have was just a it's a tight small close-knit community and and they are they're they're for you they're just really for you and they um really really took care of us during that time. And, and even we had seen that already when we, when we brought Haley and Daniel in, we just had so many people who were willing to help. Um, when we brought them in to our home for the first time, we just had this amazing community around us that just, they prayed for us and we had, um, you know, it took us a long time for them to get a spot in the daycare. We don't have enough daycare facilities in our County really. And so, the we had a couple of ladies from church who um kept kids during the day until they got a spot in a daycare and you know, people would say, Hey, y'all need anything? I've got a high chair in my attic or I've got a I've got, you know, this or that. And it was just always exactly what we needed when we needed it. And so we we've just been really, really blessed. Well it sounds like between your um your family support group and, and your your church group that you had a lot of support there. Um, I do have to ask. So, what what role did faith play in not only getting through that, but even joining the foster care system in the first place? I know that's that's a big component for a lot of people. What did that play a part in in your decision to begin foster care and and then your journey through this this difficult place? Yeah, I um, you know, I'm. I teach Bible. I'm the Bible high school Bible teacher, and I preach for the congregation that meets in the uh, the school cafeteria, actually. Uh, and, you know, 
I, I, it's just hard not to, it's hard to read the Bible and not come across where you need to be helping people. Uh, and, you know, Jesus himself, you know, said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so you, you begin to realize that it's not you being better than someone. It's actually you realizing that you need, you're in need. I'm needy. You know, I, I'm a needy person. I'm a selfish person. Um, you know, he reached out to me. He's come for me. And so, you know, it's not one of these things where I'm better than, you know, the biological parent here, or I'm not, I'm better than these kids. And I've got something great that's of me to offer them. It's really the opposite. You know, I was without a father. I was without a family. You know, I was without that spiritual uh, family. Well, here's somebody who physically needs that help. And so it's not me coming from a place that's better than you. And I've got something I can give you. We're really all in the same level. It's just, I know, you know, it's kind of like I've heard, you know, we're all hungry, but I know where the bread is. So I, I just want you to come around and get something too, you know, and it's just being open to that. And so over and over again in scripture, it tells you to look out to help those uh, that can't return the favor. You know, what, what good is it to, you know, really, if I help somebody and they pat me on the back, that's great. But when you help someone who cannot help themselves, that's the true reward because that's what Jesus did for us. I couldn't dig my way out of my, my lostness. You know, he came and got me. And so in that now, you know, out of my love for him, I want to do the same, you know, I want to reach out to those. And so over and over again, you see in scripture, you know, true religion is to help the widows and the orphans, you know, and to help people who can't help themselves. And so it's not like I'm all that in a bag of chips. It's that he's all that in a bag of chips. And, you know, I want to, because he helped me and loved me, I want to show that to other people. But, you know, you get in a situation where you're in the hospital and it's really kind of put up or shut up. You know, you've been teaching this for years, right? You know, I've been a Christian since I was 12 years old. I've taught a lot of Bible classes and it's a lot easier to teach them than live them. And, you know, you get in that situation and you, you go, okay, well now it's time to practice what you preach, man. And, you know, you got, I, I got letters. I got like 300 visitors in 30 some odd days. And I got boxes of letters from people from the church and just, you know, the, the male ladies were like, are you, like a rock star or something like, are you popular? And we just don't know, like, what is this? And I said, well, you know, I do a little youth conference thing in front of 14,000 people or so. And, you know, they just apparently liked me for some reason. I don't know. Um, but I got a letter from one of my students and let, you know, like a month or less before I was standing up in class and I said, you know, it's not really, what you say, it's not what you do as far as, you know, what you're up saying. It's when, you know, you're laying in a hospital bed, not knowing whether you're going to live or die and what you do then, you know? And so he sends me this little quote that I said a few weeks ago and I go, there's another place where my big mouth got me in trouble. Like, just shut up, man. Just stop talking, you know? Um, and so it's really comes down to, and I, I, you know, this may not sound very eloquent, but just straight up stubbornness, like, I've said this all my life and now it's time to live up to it, you know, and die trying literally, um, you know, you can't go back now, you know, it's a, you know, talk to talk, walk to walk. And, 
you know, you I just had trust. so many cards. I had so many visitors. Of course, I had my rock solid wife there and my mom was able to stay with us a lot. And, you know, I would just have doctors and nurses. You know, I had a lady every morning I had to have an EKG for some reason at 430 in the morning, five o'clock. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> You know, and they would come in, I'd be half asleep and they're like, you know, I just love coming in your room. It's so warm. It's so inviting. It's so encouraging. We just don't get this a lot, you know, and I'm like, well, it's nothing to do with me because I'm really irritated right now. (laughs) You know, so it was, it was like these people, you know, this, the body itself, you know, reached out and it really was a village that got us through the cancer that got us through the, the, uh, the fostering. And, uh, you know, when we adopted our two, we had t-shirts made and it says we are the village on the front. And it had as many names as we could slap on the back of that shirt of people who had done exactly what Whitney had said, Whitney said, you know, just really took this ignorant couple and, uh, you know, at least ignorant husband, I better correct myself. No. Uh, she's very forgiving. Um, and, and like, let us by the hand and let us through it. So it was like, you know, we were able to completely put into these kids because we had so many people that were willing to completely put into us. And, you know, for those of you that are listening that may not be foster parents, but you know foster parents, you know, that is a tremendous thing that you can do is just be there even as a sounding board. You know, on days when, you know, I remember calling my cousin. For some reason, Sunday nights were so hard. I don't know what it was, but I'd call my cousin, who's a personal counselor, professional counselor that does our podcast with us. And I would just ask him, you know, you got to give me some tidbits, man, because it is so hard to know what to do. And, you know, you're obviously you're limited on disciplinary approaches and things of that nature. You know, what are some things I can do? And he just had to put up with me because I would just call and I'd be so mad, so frustrated, so angry. And he would always bring me back down and build me back up again. And so, you know, even willing to pick up the phone and let us complain a little bit (laughs) is a tremendous service um, to, to foster parents and really anybody who's parenting. Well, it sounds to me like one of the common themes to your entire story is having having a community around you to be a part of that you pour into on a regular basis so that in those moments when you need to be poured into, there are people there willing to help you. Uh, yes, absolutely. It's just, uh, I'm just blown away every time I think about it with all of the people who came to our aid at, at that time. I mean, just, you know, he had former football players that would come when they got off work and stop by the hospital and pick up our laundry, take it home and wash it. And just, and all of those things, and they seem small, but wow, when you are in the middle of something like that, everything feels overwhelming. And even just, somebody coming and picking up your dirty clothes and taking them home to wash them and bringing them back to you is just that sounds like a real level of faith too to hand your laundry to a uh to a boy yeah <laughs> well i mean he was he was a former player he was like you know in his 20s 
married. He had a wife at home. So, so I'm pretty and, sure she did that. Um, <laughs> even though he owes me, because how many times did I wash their jerseys? You know, I mean, come on. So, no. but that it was really good. It was really uplifting. You really see your impact. You know, even though you know you don't feel like you're doing very much, it, being available. You know, and I think that's foster parenting. You know, you may be sitting out there going, "Well, I don't, I can't do this," but you know, even if you're available, we've had one placement since adopting these two and we were only able to keep them for 24 hours, but it was a place for them to stay, you know, that wasn't an office or wasn't, you know, wasn't where they were at, you know, which was not a great situation. And so I guess my encouragement is, you know, we knew that we couldn't do it either really. And then we really found out once we had them that we couldn't do it on our own, but, you know, it's amazing the people that will rally around you if you're really trying to do the right thing by someone. And so even if you can give them 24 hours of sleeping in a comfortable place, uh, as alienated as it might feel that they can actually rest. Uh, you know, that's one thing about leukemia and being in the hospital, you know, you really couldn't rest. I mean, you got to points where you were just so exhausted, but there's a difference between, Hey, I just can't keep my eyes open and rest. You know, there is a difference. And I think that if you can provide somebody a 24 hour respite, then you're giving somebody rest. And I think we all know how important rest is to the body and to being able to continue on. Oh yeah. Um, Amanda's dealt with some insomnia over the years from time to time. And, and, you know, she could really speak to the importance of, of being able to have that rest because it's something that she's had to struggle with. And I had a, another friend of mine who spent some time in the hospital because it, he actually leads a dad's group that if you listen to the podcast for like five minutes, he gets mentioned on about every other episode. And Larry struggled through some time with some insomnia as well. And it really affected him to the point where he ended up in the hospital full mm -hmm. of enough uh, enough medications to make a horse sleep. And, and I think he might have been a touch drowsy at that point. And, wow. you know, yeah, I've talked with him quite a bit about it, you know, especially as my wife goes through it, just looking out at, for uh, for some advice and help with how to help her. And and that's such an important part of becoming a good parent, because you cannot be a good parent when you're exhausted. No. <laughs> and as as a parent, you will at some point be exhausted as a foster parent. You will at more points be exhausted Yeah. because you're dealing with traumas on a daily mm -hmm. basis. You know, I don't know your particular kid's stories about where they came from or what they experienced before before they came into care, but every kid that comes into care has some some level of trauma, even if it's just that loss of their first family. Right. And, and you know, I say that all the time. It's like people I tell people that same thing all the time is they 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 want to know about foster care and they're thinking about doing foster care and they, they really want to adopt and and uh, foster care, you know, foster care is one of the ways to adopt and all this. And I'm like, well, you know, but they don't want they don't want hard, hard kids. And it's like, well, the kids are not hard. It's it is the what what they've been through is hard. And therefore, um, that's that makes their life just tumultuous. And so. There's just different things that you have to be able to help them through. And so I always say, you know, there wouldn't be a need for foster care if there was no trauma that these kids have been through. Like they're all, they're all coming to 
in the foster care system because they've been through something hard and something traumatic. I mean, you don't get into foster care if you've been, if you've had a, you know, rosy life situation. Nobody, nobody comes and takes you away from your family if everything has been perfect and good. And so, you know, every child that, that comes to you from this foster care situation is going to have some things that they need help working through. And it just does, it just requires some extra, just some extra everything, a little extra patience, a little extra energy, a little extra rest. It's extra support, all of it. And having that community around you to help provide that is, is, almost a complete necessity, I think, for most people. And it sounds like you guys have done that really well. Was that something that you set out to build that community intentionally around you, or is it just a product of where your life led you? I don't think that it was intentional. It's just, we, we've just been really blessed um, by this community and definitely our um, work, our work and church family overlap a lot. Um, And and because we work in a private Christian school, um, we just we have even a almost a bigger Christian church family because it's not just our home church that we get to be a part of. We get to be a part of all of these students' lives that go here to this school and that we get to teach on a daily basis and coach and on a daily basis and and so we get to know them and we get to know their families and, and, um, they have all just been so supportive of us as well. So it's just, it, it's, it's not something that I don't think we really meant to do, but we've been really, we've been really blessed by it. And it's just something that, that is unquantifiable. I feel like. That's a great word. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, I get to the hospital and, you know, they had to end up having to give me a bigger room because I had so many people. I mean, I'm diagnosed. I have the biopsy. I get to the hospital. They're doing everything in their power trying to get blood into me. You know, they can't find a vein because my veins are so small. So there's all these nurses, but then my room starts filling up and people are coming in and, you know, wanting to pray with me. And, and at, at that moment, you start to realize, man, I mean, for some reason, people like me. It probably has more to do with my wife than anything. But for some reason, <laughs> these people want me to survive somehow, some way, you know, and you know, that's just encouraging. And, you know, we had that from the get go with these kids, you know, and, and people just fell in love with them. You know, they've we from day one, we started the classes. We had this these people who had us on their prayer list and were praying for us every week. We get the kids, their prayers go up more <laughs> because they probably saw how, how much we were struggling. And, you know, and then leukemia comes along and, you know, they, they like my speaking so much that they let me call in from the hospital and do a little devotional, you know, over the speakers. And, you know, they're just praying, 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 praying. And it's like, they almost won't let us, you know, even when we want to give up, they're not going to let us give up. And, you know, there's just no way to overstate how much of an impact that's had on us, how much of an impact it's had on Haley and Daniel. I mean, they just, they love coming to see people. They're having a difficult time deciding which one's the church, which one's the school that they go to. I think they don't have any idea how that works. And, 
that's kind of how we want to keep it. You know, we don't want them to think that there's anything really different because it's not to, to a large degree. And, you know, as you said, we, they are the village, you know, and, and for them to kind of live vicariously through us and take care of these kids. But then the flip side is, is they've been praying for these kids, biological parents all along as well. And, you know, we've seen some great strides in, in that relationship. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I did 86 or 80, I don't know exact number, but almost 90 infusions. So even when I got out of the hospital and the hospital, I was doing infusion, two hour infusion, three hour, two, two, three hour infusion every day for seven days for 30 some odd weeks. And then I get out and I do five days a week. So I'm driving from work. I'll go to work, teach for couple of hours, load up and drive 30, 40 minutes to do a two hour transfusion five days a week. And then coming back and you've got people who are willing to drive me down there. And I don't know how many of them thought about this, but, you know, at any point I get sick and they're going to, you know, they're going to be with the sick guy and not know what to do. And yet here they are doing that to lighten the load. So, you know, it was it was a wild ride. You know, I remember thinking and reading a story about a young man who'd had like 60 transfusions and being, you know, going to Whitney and going, man, this kid is the toughest dude on the planet. He's had like 60 trans, you know, infusions. And Whitney's like, well, how many do you think you've had? I was like, well, I don't know. I guess we count them up once again, ignorance, you know, and it's like 80 plus in a six month period, you know, it's like, okay, well that kind of puts things in perspective, you know, but without them, there's no way you know, that, that we are where we are today, you know, and, and whether you're a faith-based person or not, you know, you can get a group like that of people. It's really good uh, and can help you, whatever that looks like, whether it's a faith-based or team or whatever, we just happen to have a little bit of everybody. And I think it takes that. It sounds like an incredible journey. You know, um, it just, it sounds amazing. And I'm so, so happy that you guys had that surrounding you because it's hard. It's hard mm -hmm. being a parent. It's hard being a foster parent. Um, so to have that support is great. And I'm so thankful that you guys had that for your journey. Where's your journey leading you guys now? Are you guys done? Are you still fostering? Right now we're, we're still on with DCS. Um, we're only on as respite care providers or emergency care providers for, for um, short-term periods. So um, if they have somebody, a foster parent that needs a break, um, we can keep kids. If they just um, have kids that they need to work out an out-of-state contract for or anything like that, we can, we can help and keep those, those kids or um, if they're moving kids from one place to another and, and need to uh, an overnight stop for them. We, we can do that too. Um, I don't know if we'll do more long-term in the future. Um, but right now we're just with our jobs and in the school that we work in, it's really hard to bring in, um, kids long-term with, um, well, especially during the pandemic, that's kind of the biggest thing right now is um, we have to be very, very careful or we could, you know, we have a very short 
faculty and staff. And so if some one of us gets one of us gets um, sick and is out, then it just puts a huge burden on the rest of the people who work here. So we're we're limiting our contacts and our movement um, just kind of across the board right now. Yeah, this whole pandemic thing has put all of us into a really weird place for sure. Yeah. That's I, you know, I, I think about, you know, situations like if this pandemic was happening when I got diagnosed. I mean, oh, wow. Whitney's not allowed to stay, you know, and, and I just can't imagine somebody who now is on seventh floor of Hunts Hospital like I was and not be able to have the visitors like I had. I mean, that passed the time. You know, it was just, and so I, my heart goes out to those people who, who are in those situations or, you know, people who are having babies and can't have but one person, you know, and, and sometimes not even that, depending on where they live. And so, you know, I just can't imagine. And then you think about, you know, somebody who doesn't know they have a secondary condition. You know, I didn't have, I didn't know until October 18th of, the, of 2018 that I had a secondary condition and, you know, to find out that you've got one and oh yeah by the way this virus is going around you know just now my immune system now is great you know i've been in remission you know and and that's awesome and that's wonderful but i just my heart goes out to those people who are having to deal with that uh you know obviously i don't want to get sick i don't want to test my immune system you know covid 19 is not how i want to test it out and see give it a, a run you know <laughs> a test run but i can't imagine people who are having to deal with that but then also you know who people are still fostering. You know, you've got these kids coming from all kinds of situations and are willing to to still open their home. And that's another thing to, to deal with. Yeah. That's actually why we have a, a placement right now. The, uh, the first, the, the last placement had a uh, medically fragile parent there. And as this whole thing kind of unfolded, it was uh, something where they said, no, we, we can't do this. You know, with a kid going to daycare every day and potentially bringing something back with somebody who had a, had a medical condition that was, could be very serious if there was any complications. So we, uh, we ended up becoming a placement now for, uh, for this one child, but it, there's actually, there's a more long-term placement, a more long-term placement in her future that, uh, that we, we've been working towards. It's just a challenge, I think, for everybody involved. Now you mentioned earlier that, um, that you have a podcast of your own. Tell me about that. And what's the name? Um, it is the, let me make sure I get my H's right here. We just recently changed the name. Uh, so it's the Helping Healing Humor podcast with Ben and Travis. And I'm Travis of Ben and Travis. And my cousin Ben is is a uh, licensed professional counselor. And it really was bore out of uh, our circumstance and our situation uh, with leukemia and we we give our whole story there uh, in the first few episodes, and then we had our foster care journey episode. And so what we do is is we just have people on, and we have them give our their story and their journey uh, to and through Christ, who brought them through uh, difficulties. Um, this last week, we actually had a, a major league uh, a guy who played in the major leagues and uh, lost his brother to a in a car accident. And so he was on talking about how he uh, dealt with those things and got through those things. And once again, how the community, uh, you know, the village helped him do that. And so we, we bring people on and who have different experiences and uh, they, they kind of talk about how they 
come through that and, you know, their support system. And, and it's been really neat. It's been really eye opening. Um, one of my favorite episodes was just a few weeks ago, a guy came on and he had lost his father in college, uh, to an elect, uh, electricity accident, electrocution, accidental electrocution. And then his toddler son actually passed away. Still don't know how, why he died, but suddenly one morning and he was gone. Um, you know, and he's done a, a seminar and has written books and things of that nature. And he just came on and just, man, knocked it out of the park on do's and don'ts of handling situations when people's pat, you know, people have passed, you know, what to say, not to say things to do, you know, cause I'm a, I need it practical. I need somebody to go, Hey, don't do that. Right. And, uh, <laughs> this is dumb. Don't do that. That That's not the way to go. And so I, you know, I just, appreciate people who can take difficult things and make practical, you know, uh, solutions and things that I'm, who is, you know, that even though I'm not the smartest guy in the world, uh, you know, I, I can get on that. I can sink my teeth into it. So we just try to do a lot of help that way. And really, I guess, number one goal is normalize the discussion of, of mental health, you know, and, and, you know, bring it out in the open, and especially, especially among Christians, because a lot of people, you know, and I think in general, we try to ignore that. We don't think that that's really a big deal. And even if we do, we don't know how to talk about it. And I'm certainly, I don't know if y'all do the Enneagram or not, but I'm a number seven and I am a fear of missing out. And I want everything to be happy and I want everything to be joyful. And so it's really pushes my comfort zone to sit down and talk about these difficulties, you know, that don't always have a nice little bow on them. I'm a hard five with a six wing. There you go. There you go. He I knows. know exactly where I even at. got the wing down. <laughs> I've been hanging around with me for the last 40 something years. So I got it kind of figured out by now. <laughs> a hard, a hard five with a six wing. I like, I like that. So my, yeah, I have a friend who is a very, a very hardcore five too. And she, she, she's loved the pandemic actually she really yes. loved quarantine <laughs> <laughs> some of us are not that sad about having some distance and it's yes. killing me man i'm like back at school yeah back at practice yeah you know yeah we, we, we found out that i'm way more essential of a worker than i ever thought i was because oh. i have not missed a beat at work we as a matter of fact the last four weeks i've been between 60 and 65 hours a week at work Oh wow. my goodness! Wow, that's that's a lot. Bless you. But fortunately for me, most of my job involves being by myself, and I enjoy that part. Although for the last four weeks, I was training a guy, so you know, not his fault. But I'm over here like I miss my space, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, is really good for a five. So you get a lot of alone time driving, and you binge podcasts while you do it. So you're bringing in the information, and you're alone, and that's yeah, exactly that's what I do. There you go. That's good for a five. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it allows me to bring a lot of information into my head and gives me something to think about. So it's great for me. But I think and I was talking with a friend of mine um, just yesterday, I believe, who's uh, um, he, he says that nobody would believe his actual Enneagram number because he's I wouldn't have actually guessed it either. But, um, you know, as we talked about it, he said, I don't like things like that, though, because it, it labels people and it, it really tends to limit beliefs for people. And we talked around it a little bit. I said, yeah, but for me, for me, it allows me to understand kind of who I am and what fear brought me to that place and allows me some space to work on that. 
And I think right. a, a lot of that, it really ties back into where we've ended up in this journey. Because I, I agree. I, I have, yeah, I, when I read any Enneagram stuff, I'm a, I'm a one pretty solid one. And, um, so when I read any Enneagram stuff and I read the one stuff, I'm always like, Oh man, I just, I'm so grossed out by myself. I'm like, <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> I, I think that's and, who we all are, are supposed to be grossed out by as ourself. Yeah. So I, I just have but it does, it gives you, it gives you a spot to work from. Like you kind of know, like, Oh, this is why I do this thing. And this is why this thing really, really bothers me when it really shouldn't be that big of a deal. And I can, you know, I can kind of nurture myself with that and be like, okay, you know, the toys are all over the floor. It's, it, it'll be okay. It's not really that <laughs> terrible. And in, in the long run, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be perfect. And here I come along throwing the toys everywhere. Woo, this is great. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, and that's, you know, one of the things we've we talked with Melissa Corcoran a while back and she is a uh, she she does a lot of work around the Enneagram of people and that's one of the interesting things we found. Amanda and I are we are definitely not only are we not the same number anywhere close, we're from different triads, you know. Yeah. I am of the head triad, she is of the heart and it's it's kind of one of the ways that manifest how we all are attracted to something that's different from us. And it ends up working out to be something beautiful if you do it properly. Well, we work out pretty well together because as a one and a seven, like, you know, in, in health, ones act like sevens. And then in stress, sevens act like ones. So we can kind of, um, we can, I can kind of tell when, he is too stressed because he starts to act too much like me <laughs> and I like him less because <laughs> so, he's too much like me. Yeah, that's but, awesome. You know, and for me, that's part of the reason why this foster care journey has been such a good thing for us because where I don't connect closely with a lot of people for whatever mm -hmm. reason, you know, drag it all the way back to something that happened in your childhood, some you know, long gone story that you don't remember. I don't know for whatever you want to bl blame your, your current person on. I don't think that necessarily matters, but I don't connect closely with people. But when DFS or actually it's children's division out here now, they changed that name years ago and they get mad when you call them DFS. But when they <laughs> show up at my front door with a little kid, I can quickly become a three-year-old and That's a, awesome. a couple of hot wheels and, and a, a play mat on the floor. And, and we're, we're running from the park over to the donut shop and, and just having a good time. And, and I can do that and connect really well, strangely enough, with little kids. That's and amazing. You'd be amazed how many mothers I know I have scared to death in the grocery store because, you know, this big brown guy with a big beard and, and this mean look on his face because I do tend to walk around with a leave me alone face on. And their little kid sees right through it. And this little kid sitting in the cart smiles yeah. and waves at me. And it's, it's some young mom with her daughter. And they're like, she's like, oh, no. You know, they hurry off to the next aisle. And, and I just have to smile because it's, kids see through that. Yeah. And that's a place I connect really well and, and can, can be. It's a really good place for me to, to connect with kids who don't have that, that connection because of some form of abuse, some form of neglect, whatever it is. And, and it allows me to be able to give some of what I have, some of the positive things that I've experienced. And be able to transfer that over to these kids who may not have that experience. So it gives us a lot of room to be able to help others. And it sounds like you guys have been 
been using your gifts to do the same thing with kids in your area? Yeah, you know, the Enneagram number, you explained it perfectly. It gives a place to kind of start. And, you know, as a seven, I'm kind of like, run some dirt on it, kid, and let's go. There's something <laughs> fun to do. But, you know, it takes more than that. And, and it really has helped me realize that you just can't reframe everything to make it happy. And, and But it's made me more compassionate. It makes me kind of pump the brakes and go, okay, this kid, they need something more than that. You know, and I'm definitely one of the ones, hey, let's get in the floor, let's get the toys out and let's get imaginative and let's get after it. And but, you know, that kind of helped me slow down and go, hey, we just can't move on to the next thing. You got to take some time. And I guess it was that hospital stay help, too. You know, it's like be still. Don't miss the lesson. You can be a better person from this. And, you know, the hardest day I had in the hospital was Halloween. (laughs) <laughs> yes. and it, it just is. man i don't know what it was uh, you know i think i drank my insure too fast nobody warns you hey <laughs> don't drink the whole bottle of insure as fast as you can that's bad um but you know my kids are out having halloween which is great and i feel bad because somebody brought me like a picture of them on halloween like oh look and man i just lost it it was it was over like i'm missing you know of course the seven again you know, I'm missing this fun time. And, and man, it was just brutal on Halloween, you know, and I just can remember that being such a hard day because I was missing out on something that was such a big deal. And it was, you know, it was some selfishness, but it was also, man, they're, they're growing up and I'm up here in this room, you know, and I'm missing this. And, uh, that, that was hard. Yeah, it's always hard for sure when you go through those moments. You know, we we watched our daughter go through that, and you know, there was a lot of time, a lot of hours logged in a hospital. And just before that, I'd spent a lot of time with my dad as he went through some chemo and radiation treatments before he lost his battle with cancer as well. One of the things that I think we learned most most profoundly is is that sometimes what you're supposed to do is just stop, mm-hmm. just stop this moment. There, there's some sacredness in each moment. You're right. Find that sanctity in the moment and and just just be for a minute because, man, sometimes the connection that you can build with with a kid who may not have that connection anywhere else in their life, you can you can give them a piece of that that piece that passes understanding. Mm-hmm. You're and, right. And once you've taught that, what greater gift can you give a kid? Yeah, uh, you know, I think of the story of Job, you know, he loses everything and his buddies come and they sit around him. And when they sit around him and keep his mouth shut, they're fine. You know, they're, they're supportive. They're available. But then they open their mouth <laughs> and they blow it up. Yeah, they mess the whole thing up by opening their mouth. But, you know, my biggest regret as a parent, the thing that I sit and think of at night the most is, did I give them enough time today? You know, did I have that moment where I either laid near them in bed for two minutes, you know, because I do go to work, I coach football and I pour into these, everybody else's kids, you know, and there's good in that. And I'm not saying that that's bad and that's terrible, but did I come home and let them know that I'm there for them, you know? And, uh, you know, I've really tried to work on that because of Halloween 2018, you know, and, and really, you know, very rarely do I lay awake at night and think of something at work that I should have gotten done. But I lay there and I go, okay, did, did Haley and Daniel and, of course, Whitney know today that I am theirs, you know, first and foremost, you know, and, and that's always kind of a 
surreal moment, but also there are days where I can go, yeah, I think I think I did a pretty good job on that, you know, and you can always be better. But yeah, that's a great, great thing that sometimes you just sit there and enjoy the moment. And that's certainly something that leukemia, and I think that the Lord through leukemia, I don't think he gave me leukemia by any means, but through that, there are lessons to be learned, just like in any foster care situation. You learn a lot about yourself. Amen to that. There's there's a, a piece of light in every dark room. It's our just just our job to find it. Mm-hmm. And I, I agree yeah. with that a hundred percent. Well, it's great hearing you guys' story. Is um is there any way that you for people to get a hold of you? Um I'll definitely have your guys' podcast uh, linked up in the show notes. I assume you're on all the, the regular players, iTunes, Spotify, that sort of thing. Yes, sir, as far as I know. Um and that's the helping healing humor podcast with Ben and Travis. And of course it's probably easier to go to benandtravis.com, uh, that's got everything we've got. Um, we really started out, like that U conference I mentioned, we really started out as kind of a YouTube uh, spiritual funny. Uh, we, we did the spiritual mayhem take on the insurance commercials, and I am mayhem. <laughs> and so those are probably our best work. Um, and, of course, we just rip off insurance commercials all day long. It's just too good. Um, and so you can get all our YouTube and all that stuff at benandtravis.com. We've got a little ebook, you know, 28 days of focused living. It's a little checklist journal uh, on how to serve people and kind of bring focus to your life. And Whitney actually put together a a little five day meal plan, um, and grocery list, uh, that you can get at benandtravis.com backslash meal plan. Um, and, uh, as you can tell, she's really awesome. Well, do you think you could get her come to come by our house and, and just cook for five days? That would be a lot a lot nicer. Maybe. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not gonna complain at all. It's all it's all crock pot <laughs> stuff, right? Well, not all of not it. Not all of it, a good bit of it. Well, I could even so. do some of it, you know. It's so. gotta be, yeah. It's <laughs> it's gotta be pretty um hands off at our house because oh yes i love a good crock pot meal that saves us so many times with our schedule and all the kids if i can throw it in the night before or that morning and it just does the work for me oh yeah absolutely yes 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 ma'am yeah our crock pot gets a lot of use it comes out of the refrigerator in the morning goes in there gets turned on and then there's dinner at night and i'm a happy boy absolutely. yes i do that a lot too i do that <laughs> that'll, a lot that'll be our supper tonight we actually set it up to run while we're doing this podcast. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. It was wonderful to meet you and hear from you. And yeah, thank you thank for you sharing for your story. Us. Thanks for having us. We enjoyed it. Nice to meet you guys. And just God's blessings on you guys and all of your kids and your, your foster journey. It's, it's amazing what y'all are doing and just bringing awareness. You know, I think that's, that's huge. I think a lot of people are kind of, misunderstanding about what foster care is and and who foster kids are. Travis and Whitney are amazing people and it was an honor to have them on to tell their story. If you have a story that you'd like to tell, email us at fostercareuj at gmail.com. We'd love to talk to you about your story. That's the only way that we get to tell these stories for other people is when they reach out and let us know they have something worth sharing. In the meanwhile, I'd like to ask you a favor. Pick out your favorite episode and send a link to one of your friends, family members, a co-worker, anybody who might be interested in what we do. It's the best way you could possibly support us. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do it at patreon.com slash foster care nation. 
Every little bit helps, and a dollar or two a month is great. If not, I get it. I get kids. I understand. I have to feed them like every day, believe it or not. They won't let me skip a day here or there. I tried. It didn't work. Trust me. Don't try it. It was a bad plan. If you'd like to learn more about us, go over to fostercarenation.com and you will find us there. And as always, we'll see you next week. Our episodes drop every Tuesday. And never forget, 